It's good to be here with you today and for this ministerial conference weekend that we're having on Tuesday. I'm not going to take much time here at the beginning. I'm going to start with a piece that was written by the late Irma Bombeck. She writes, for the first four or five years after I had children, I considered motherhood a temporary condition, not a calling. It was a time of my life set aside for exhaustion and long hours. It would pass. Then one afternoon with three kids in tow, I came out of a supermarket pushing a cart with four wheels that went in opposite directions. A couple of you recognize that. When my toddler son got away from me, just outside the door, he ran toward a machine holding bubble gum in a glass dome. In a voice that shattered glass, he shouted, gimme, gimme. I told him what I would give him if he didn't stop shouting and get in the car. As I physically tried to pry his body from around the bubblegum machine, he pulled the entire thing over. Glass and balls of bubblegum went all over the parking lot. He had now attracted a sizable crowd. I told him he would never see a cartoon as long as he lived, and if he didn't control his temper, he was going to be making license plates for the state. <laughs> Those of you not aware of that, that's going to prison. He tried to stifle his sobs as he looked around at the staring crowd. Then he did something that I was to remember for the rest of my life. In his helpless quest for comfort, he turned to the only one he trusted his emotions with, me. He threw his arms around my knees and held on for dear life. I had humiliated him, chastised him, and berated him. But I was still all he had. That single incident defined my role. I was a major force in this child's life. Sometimes we forget how important stability and our presence is to our children. Someone said the easiest part of being a mother is giving birth. The hardest part is showing up each day. Last Sunday was Mother's Day. The cards probably did not reflect it. One of the things that kids were trying to say is thanks, Mom, for showing up each day. The Bible has many examples of motherhood, starting with Eve, the mother of all living, Sarah, Rebecca, Hannah, Mary. I want to focus on a mother that is probably not well known, and that is because there is very little written about her. Her name is Rizpah. Rizpah. We find her story in 2 Samuel chapter 21. And she is a great example of motherhood because she showed up each day. Now, before we get to her story, I want to deal with the historical background of the situation first. 2 Samuel chapter 21, beginning with verse 1, it says, Now, there was a famine in the days of David for three years. 
year after year. And David inquired of the Lord, and the Lord answered, It is because of Saul and his bloodthirsty house, because he killed the Gibeonites. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the children of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. The children of Israel had sworn to protect them. But Saul had sought to kill them in his zeal for the children of Israel and Judah. Therefore David said to the Gibeonites, what shall I do for you? And with what shall I make atonement that you may bless the inheritance of the Lord? You are part of it. We want to see what you can do or what I can do to bless you. The Gibeonites said to him, we will have no silver or gold. We don't want money. Or from his house, nor shall we kill any man of Israel, nobody else out of Israel, we want to deal with this situation. So he said, whatever shall you say, I will do for you. Then he answered the king, as for the man who consumed us and plotted against us, that we should be destroyed from remaining in any of the territories of Israel, let seven men of his descendants be delivered to us, and we will hang them before the Lord in Gibeah of Saul, whom the Lord chose. And the king said, I will give them. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, because the Lord's oath, and that was between them, and that David and Jonathan, the son of Saul, had an oath between them, and he would not take any of Jonathan's sons. So we have a famine in Israel. It's been going on for three successive years. Obviously, conditions are not good if you've got a famine that long. David concluded, rightly, that God was punishing them. So he goes to God in prayer and asks God, what's the reason? What's happening here? God's response that Saul killed the Gibeonites. And it was horrible. It was unfair. Now, in order to understand how bad things were because of this, Joshua chapter 9, which I'm not going to go back there, children of Israel entered into the land, already defeated Jericho, defeated, defeated Ai. Gibeonites came to them in Joshua chapter 9 deceived the king, deceived Joshua, who wasn't king at that time, but they deceived Joshua and the leaders of Israel, that they had come from a long distance. Look at the clothes, oh, look at the bread, oh, look at the shoes, oh, we're old. We've been traveling so long just to get here. We want to be spared, spared from being defeated by you. So a covenant was made between Israel and Gibeon. And they found out, Israel did, they were deceived. But the decision was, let them live. We cannot go against this covenant, let them live. 350 years later, Saul violated it. He killed the Gibeonites. And this is why the famine was brought on. 
David asked the Gibeonites what could be done. We want seven of Saul's descendants. We don't want monetary compensation. We want his descendants. We want to go ahead and do whatever we can to besmirch the lineage of Saul. That is not off the records in terms of the law. Number 35 indicates that they could do that. But they asked for these seven boys, and those boys were delivered to them. And we pick up the story in 2 Samuel 21, verse 8. So the king took Armoni and Mephibosheth, the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, whom she brought to Saul, and the five sons of Michael, the daughter of Saul, whom she brought up for Adriel, the son of Barzillai, and the Maholothite. And he delivered them into the hand of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them on the hill before the Lord, so they fell, all seven together, and were put to death in the days of the harvest, in the first days, in the beginning of the barley harvest. Rizpah could not save her sons from execution. Those two boys were killed. Their dead bodies were on display to dishonor the house of Saul. Rispa was one of Saul's concubines. This is brought out in verse 11 of this chapter. Some commentators say that she was a Gentile, maybe a Hivite. Her name means hot, glowing stone. And it could be a reference to her physical beauty because most of the cases, concubines were beautiful. But we come to verse 10. And we find her actions. Now Rispa, the daughter of Aiah, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock from the beginning of the harvest until the late rains poured on them from heaven. And she did not allow the birds of the air to rest on them by day, nor the beasts of the field by night. These bodies of all seven would have eventually been violated by birds, by wild animals. This is where we see some important things we can learn from this lady. She's an example of devotion and dedication. Now look at this again. Verse 9. It says they were put to death in the days of the harvest and the beginning of the barley harvest. Verse 10. From the beginning of the harvest is the barley harvest until the rain poured down from heaven. The barley harvest began around March. March to April. The heavy rains started falling in November, December. The time frame for the bodies being exposed, six, seven, eight, nine, ten months. Not a couple of days, not a couple of weeks. Their bones were exhumed or brought down, or actually the bones of Saul and Jonathan were exhumed, but their bones were used as well in the burial process. Verse 13, it says, they gathered the bones of those who had been hanged. The bones of her son were buried, showing that the exposure to the elements had been long. How did she do that? Why did she do that? 
Maybe she had servants helping her. After all, she was a concubine of a king. No doubt somebody had to bring her food. She had to sleep. Maybe somebody helped her watch the boys' bodies while she slept. She spread a sackcloth on the land. And that could be for several reasons. She could have used it for a place to lie down. It could have been for a place of a shelter. May have even been a sign of repentance. Famine continued until there was repentance. Verse 14 mentions this. And after that, God heeded the prayer of the land. Sackcloth could have been for repentance. But back to verse 10. She did not allow the birds of the air to rest on them by day, nor the beasts of the field by night. She kept the birds of prey and the wild beasts from violating her son's bodies. It was the intent of the Gibeonites to have these sons of Saul's, Saul devoured and the memory of Saul dishonored. Rispa would not let that happen. Do you think it was a pleasant experience for her to sit on that hill for six plus months? Do you think she enjoyed watching her son's bodies decay right before her eyes? Do you think her arms ever grew weary from fighting the birds during the day, the wild animals at night? Do you think she ever dreamed of the day when this whole ordeal would be over and she could finally rest? Regardless, she protected her sons even though they were dead. And this speaks volumes to parents, but especially to mothers. It is certainly true that a mother has a special bond in her heart for her children. Death does not necessarily sever that tie. I tend to believe that once you have felt that life in your womb, there is a bond that is never broken. Mothers who have lost a child at any age, even adults, quite often don't forget the pain. They deal with it, but they don't necessarily forget it. They remember anniversaries. They place flowers at graves. Conversation can suddenly bring a flush of tears to their eyes. God told our first mother about that pain in the Garden of Eden. I'm going to just read it. Eve had taken of the forbidden fruit along with Adam. God placed the curse on the serpent before verse 16 of Genesis chapter 3. Curse on Adam after it. Curse on the serpent, then on Adam. And then in verse 16 of Genesis 3, to the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain, you shall bring forth children. I believe that pain is dealing more than just with childbirth. It 
There probably was joy at the birth of her firstborn, Cain. But Cain murdered Abel. And I'm sure that brought her pain. You get that sense at the end of chapter 4. When it mentions Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and named him Seth, for God has appointed another seed for me instead of Abel. There was a connection. And at Abel's death, there probably was pain. And that pain probably lasted and was remembered even here in Genesis chapter 4 at the end of the chapter. And due to that mother-child connection, we can understand a little bit about Rispa, why she did what she did. She camps out by the bodies of her sons and was determined to keep these birds and wild beasts away. She could not prevent the execution. But there was something that she could do and she would do. For six plus months, Rispa protected the bodies of her boys. Mothers have done that. Mothers have done that throughout history. And oh, oh, how great that need is today. Do our children, do our grandchildren need to be protected today? Are there dangers in the day that seek to harm them? Are children experiencing the possibility of terrors at night that could devour them? Our children are at risk from the vultures that are circling. Social media, be a vulture. Not all the time, but it can be. Substance abuse, vulture. Pressure, pressure to conform not just by the teens around them, the children around them. The society is going in a direction that Satan wants it to go, and there is pressure for them to conform. And all of these pressures are from the overarching vulture, our enemy, Satan, who, as Peter says, he's an adversary. He's like a roaring lion. He's like a roaring vulture wanting to devour our children. Our, how much are we aware of it? Years ago, I was asked by a teenager in my congregation to talk on the subject of homosexuality because she was experiencing the pressure at school. This is back in the last century. Pressures in school. I gave a two-parter, and I showed a video. One of the older members, been around for years, not so much in the church, but would have been at that point in time in his 50s, 60s. He came up to me and seriously asked, why are you talking about that subject? Are you gay? 
I had to explain to him. I was asked by a teenager to talk on the subject because of what she's experiencing, and she was not alone in that congregation, what she was experiencing at school. And it would do you well if you pay heed to what is going on in the lives of your children, but primarily your grandchildren coming along. Because it's going to be a whole lot worse for them. Even though what I went through and what you went through was nothing by comparison to what these kids are going through today, you need that education. A number of us in the older generation would be shocked to find out what our kids are really being bombarded with. RISPA was devoted to the task of fighting vultures. I want to go back here to Deuteronomy chapter 6, and I'll come back to 2 Samuel 21. Deuteronomy chapter 6, section known as the Shema, Beginning with verse 4, instructions to parents, and I would add grandparents, and looking at an audience out here now, even though you're blurry. Great-grandparents. It says, hear, O Israel, verse 4. The Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. And shall talk of them when you sit in the house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as signs on your hands and they shall be frontless between your eyes and you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. The Bible has to be taught. Hopefully, we are frequenting the website, Encourage, Equip, and Inspire. Phenomenal material, not just for parents, grandparents, great-grandparents. But the Bible must be taught. But before it is taught, the Bible has to be lived. The Bible has to be lived. One writer said this. We mothers must realize the importance of our examples and the development of our children's characters. We must realize that our children can see through the masks we put on. Our inner attitudes and thoughts will be revealed to our children by our day-to-day -day words and actions. If a mother says prayer is important but her children never see or hear her pray, they will follow her example rather than her words. If a mother says the Bible is an important guide to living, but she never reads the Bible to them or herself, her children will follow her example, not her words. If a mother says it is important to give the church, give to the church and her children see a checkbook, that tells a different story, they will follow her example, not her words. If a mother says God's way is the only right way but hardly gives God a thought as she goes about her daily activities, her children will follow her example, not her words. 
Yes, God's way of life must be taught. It must be taught verbally, but it must also be caught by observing God's lifestyle at work in our lives. The instructions here in Deuteronomy chapter 6, we generally just stop it right there at verse 9 or so. But I'm going to go to the end of the chapter. Genesis chapter 6, or Genesis, excuse me. Deuteronomy chapter 6, beginning with verse 20 now. Deuteronomy 6, verse 20. When your son asks you in time to come, saying, what is the meaning of the testimonies, the statutes, and the judgments which the Lord our God has commanded you. Beautiful personal pronoun. Our. Implication, it's an older child who has been instructed in the way. And there is a relationship now that is developing between that child and God. Verse 21, then you shall say to your son, we were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand, and the Lord showed signs and wonders before our eyes, great and severe against Egypt, Pharaoh, and all his household. Then he brought us out from there that he might bring us in to give us the land which he swore to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to observe all these statutes to fear the Lord our God for our good always, uh, for he might preserve us alive, that he might preserve us alive as it is this day. Then it will be righteousness for us. And if we are careful to observe all these commandments before the Lord our God, as he has commanded, it will be righteousness. Several points that are brought out in this section. When you are explaining this to your children, going back to the previous condition, we were in Egypt. Compare that to our life before being called. Then in verse 21 also, there's the intervention by God. Compare that to our calling. Then in verse 22, there's the judgment on Egypt. Compare that to what I term the heavenly gift that is brought out in Hebrews chapter 6. That even before baptism, God reaches down in our lives. There is something that he does in our lives. Then you tell them what God's purpose is. Bringing you into the promised land. Compare that to bringing us into the kingdom of God, sons of glory. Tell them about the law. We must as well. Tell them the results of obeying the law. We must as well. Then the promised land is yours. The kingdom is ours. We have to teach and be the example for our children and fight for their future. Rispa is an outstanding example of love as well. What was it that drove her to stay in that grotesque scene? It was the love she had for her two sons, and the love that Rizba displayed on that hill was not forgotten. How many people that day passed by that hill in all of that period of time 
how many of them mocked her? How many of them thought she was crazy? How many of them said that those boys deserved it? But I am sure. I'm sure in those crowds there was a mother that can understand about love that she had for her children. She was demonstrating a love that says, I will die here. I will die here before I allow these birds and these beasts to violate my boys. A seminary student in Fort Worth, Texas, many years ago, was visiting a cemetery. He noticed the woman alone, weeping bitterly by grave. He went over to her and learned she was crying over her son, her son who was buried there. Her son's name was Lee. He was killed for, quote unquote, justice, justice. Because at that time, he was the accused assassin of the 35th president of the United States, John F. Kennedy. He was Lee Harvey Oswald. And his mother, through her tears, says, does anybody care that my son is dead? Does anybody care? She did. She did. No one else was there but that mother. And just like Rizba, showing the respect even for the assassin of JFK. Rizba is every mother who has grieved, every mother who has suffered a loss of a child. There are mothers grieving in Russia, deservedly so. Mothers grieving in Ukraine, deservedly so. In Africa, Central and South America, in the United States. One of the most difficult areas of this country I spent eight years in Chicago. And I recall Day of Atonement morning. I'm finishing work on a sermon that I am to give on the Day of Atonement. And I got a phone call. It's from a mother in the church. Her son had been shot to death the night before. And I could hear I could sense and I could feel the pain. How do you speak after that? If someone were to offer Rizpa a million dollars, she would not take it because these were her boys. And she showed up every day. Finally notice here in verse 11 of 2 Samuel 21. David was told what Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, the concubines of Saul had, uh, concubine of Saul, had done. Then David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan, his son, from the men of Jabesh-Gilead, who had stolen them from the streets of Bethshane, where the Philistines had hung them up. 
After the Philistines had struck down Saul in Gibeah, verse 13, so he brought up the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan, his son, from there, and they gathered the bones of those who had been hanged. They buried the bones of Saul and Jonathan, his son, in the country of Benjamin and Zela, in the tomb of Kish, his father. So they performed all that the king commanded, and after that, God healed and heeded the prayer of the land. There's nothing that could give Rizpah her sons back. There's nothing that could fill the hole inside of her heart. But because of her actions, David took notice and her sons were buried in a proper manner. She achieved her goal. We saw that Rizpah, and we see that Rizpah saw things through to the end, to the conclusion. She didn't just start out and not finish, she finished. She stayed the course. And that's what mothers, fathers, grandparents have to do today. Are there rewards? Yes. There are the hugs. They're the kisses, they're the homemade cards, the letters, the phone calls of appreciation. What mother or even father isn't absolutely thrilled when their son hits a home run in baseball, or their daughter wins a spelling bee, or graduates from high school? But what mother, when that son succeeds in life, doesn't realize I had a part to play. I had a part to play. But the rewards also extend into the kingdom of God. Can you picture second resurrection? Armoni, Mephibosheth, coming up in the second resurrection and being told what Mama Rispa did. I can imagine they're running up to her with the hugs and the kisses and the thank yous and the thank yous even to God. Rudyard Kipling wrote a poem, Mother O' Mine, and there's a section that is similar to this account. It goes, if I were hanged on the highest hill, Mother O' Mine, Mother O' Mine, I know whose love would follow me still. Mother O' Mine, Mother O' Mine, those boys will know what their mother did. And I believe at some point they will thank God for it. So now, thanks be to God for this example. Thank you, God, for RISPA. Thank God for moms. Thank you, God, for grandmoms. Thank you, God, for nanas. And thanks, Mom, for being there. There's a very old toast that was one of Mr. Armstrong's favorites. We were discussing this last night at dinner, in which he would raise his glass, Mr. Armstrong would, and say, here's to the best years of my life, spent in the arms of another man's wife, and pause 
and say, here's the mother. Here's the mother. And as it applies, thanks, Mom, for showing up each day.